0: Chapter 4. Seeking to Build Zion. Ordination, Covenant, and Journey to the Promised Land. Seek to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. Doctrine and Covenants 6, verse 6. Ordinances and Ordination in Haran. For Abraham, the scriptures were a constant source of spiritual nourishment and refreshment, as will be seen later by his repeated reference to them in teaching his posterity. The scriptures exalted and blessed in his early years, and gave him hope in his later years. Even so, in those same scriptures, Abraham learned that they by themselves were insufficient, that they needed the constant and immediate revelation that can come only from the Holy Ghost and the ordinances. The circumstances of Abraham were different from those of Enoch and Noah, explained John Taylor, and if Abraham had the history of their times, as he unquestionably had, he would know that the revelations they received were not applicable to his case, but he needed revelation from God for his own guidance and direction. Indeed, the patriarchal records themselves clearly taught that God could not be fully found except through the ordinances he had established, ordinances that brought direct revelation through the gift of the Holy Ghost. Joseph Smith stated that there is no salvation between the two lids of the Bible without a legal administrator. Hence, reading the ex- experience of others or the revelation given to them can never give us a comprehensive view of our condition and true relation to God. Knowledge of these things can only be obtained by experience through the ordinances of God, offered by an administrator legally authorized from God. By Abraham's day, his people had for many generations been without any such legal administrator, and the blessings that flow therefrom—the gospel, the priesthood, the ordinances, the church—in a word, Zion— It was time, says Nibley, for for God to speak with Abraham face to face, restore the covenants, and organize the church. The book of Abraham never tells who Abraham's legal administrator was, but does recount that by the time Abraham left Haran, he had received the gospel ordinances and priesthood, as God speaks to him and refers to this gospel, this ministry and priesthood, and thy priesthood. A Midrash says that Abraham kept the ordinances and therefore became great. Abraham's conversion with God took place face to face, a privilege granted only after Abraham had learned that the God whom he sought was the premortal Jesus Christ, and only after receiving his ordinances and being cleansed by his blood, thus becoming his son, and only after continuing to seek this Jesus earnestly through prayer. Neither Abraham seeking the Lord, nor the Lord's appearing to Abraham in Haran is reported in Genesis, but both are mentioned not only in the book of Abraham, but also in the Zohar. When the Holy One observed his great yearning and pursued after divine knowledge, he appeared unto him. That the gospel was preached to Abraham was mentioned by the Apostle Paul, while Joseph Smith emphasized that it was preached to Abraham in the name of Christ, and with the same ordinances of baptism and receipt of the Holy Ghost that always accompany the true gospel. The Talmud insists that the fathers, the foremost among whom was Abraham, were not admitted to the covenant except by baptism and propitiation by blood. By Abraham's immersion in water, says rabbinic tradition, he becomes in effect reborn, changed, a new person. Early Judaism, in fact, looked to Abraham as the prototype of the proselytes because he received the Spirit and became a model of the reception and indwelling of the Spirit and thereafter was possessed by the Holy Spirit at all times. An important Ethiopic source recounts that Abraham was baptized with baptism, even as our Lord saith in the book of the covenant. He gave to Abraham the baptism of life and the right hand. In an early illustrated Christian manuscript of the Septuagint version of Genesis, in the picture of God commanding Abraham to leave Haran, Abraham sees a right hand being extended to him from above through a multicolored rainbow-like ark through which several rays of the sun are breaking forth. The picture is reminiscent of what the perk de Rabbi Eliezer says about the divine oath sworn to Noah when God gave him the sign of the rainbow. He put forth his right hand and swore to Noah. Abraham was receiving the ordinances that Noah had once received, pursuant to what the Lord has promised Abraham at Ur through the angel of the presence, that I will lead thee by my hand as it was with Noah, so shall it be with thee. There were additional ordinances that Abraham would yet seek and receive, but he clearly had the beginning, including the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. Abraham was, as described by Epiphanius in the 4th century, a follower of the gospel. Abraham also received the patriarchal priesthood and robes, or, as a Jewish source attest, God granted to Abraham to rule as king over the whole world and conferred upon him the power of bestowing blessings, along with the high priestly raiment, in which God had clothed Adam. Raiment reserved for the firstborn males who officiated as priests. Abraham's patriarchal priesthood, according to Joseph Smith, includes the authority to organize a church and administer the gospel and its ordinances to others. From whom did Abraham receive his ordination to the patriarchal priesthood? Who was worthy to give him that ordination? Certainly not his idolatrous father. Abraham was worthy of a blessing, stated an early church father, but Terah could not bless nor apparently could Terah's father, for as Abraham reports in the book of Abraham, his fathers had turned from their righteousness unto the worshipping of the gods of the heathen. In fact, the book of Jubilees reports that the three immediate generations of Abraham's patriarchal forefathers, his father, Terah, grandfather, Nahor, and great-grandfather, Sarug, were all idolaters. Terah repented for a short while, but had returned to his idolatry by the time Abraham left Haran. Apparently, close to the time that Abraham received the gospel ordinances and his patriarchal ordination. And who of Abraham's patriarchal ancestors was even alive when he left Haran? Such information can, only, can be calculated based upon chronological data in Genesis, providing the lifespan for each patriarch before Abraham and telling how old each was at the birth of the firstborn son, the next patriarch. The difficulty comes in deciding which version of Genesis to use for there are vast differences between the ancient versions on this chronological point. According to the chronology of the Masoretic, standard Hebrew, text from which the King James was translated, the time of the flood to Abraham's birth was 292 years. This number differs radically from that found in most other ancient sources, which preserve a chronology more than three times as long, about a thousand years, as found, for example, in the Septuagint, the Samaritan Pentateuch, Josephus, Armenian apocryphal sources, and a New Testament apocryphal source. The Masoretic chronology is further remarkable in that every one of Abraham's patriarchal forefathers, back through Shem, is alive at Abraham's birth, and only two, Nahor and Peleg, have died by the time that he is 62, when he leaves Haran, while several forefathers, including even Shem, actually outlive Abraham. Only in this Masoretic chronology is Shem alive at the birth of Abraham. In the other chronologies, Shem is long since dead, and by the time Abraham is 62, the only one of his patriarchal ancestors still alive is his father. See appendix for details and further comparison of the chronologies. Why is the Masoretic chronology so much shorter? Some scholars have suggested that it was deliberately altered for the very purpose of portraying Shem as contemporary with Abraham, so that the rabbis could identify Shem with Melchizedek and therefore remove the mystery surrounding this man to whom their ancestor Abraham paid tithes and from whom he received the priesthood. By thus being identified with Shem, Melchizedek was brought firmly inside the Jewish fold and thus no priesthood was admitted outside Judaism. The identification of Shem with Melchizedek is unknown in early sources like Josephus and in the Genesis Apocryphon is refuted by various early Christian and Muslim sources telling that Melchizedek was not one of the patriarchs and telling who his parents were, and appears impossible according to Latter-day Scripture. What all this suggests is that the Masoretic chronology was in fact deliberately shortened. Using the other chronologies narrows down who it was that could have ordained Abraham to the patriarchal priesthood just before he left Haran. Only Terah was alive, but he had returned to his idolatry. Nor does it seem likely that he would have received the ordination himself. As and since priesthood and keys can only be transferred to mortals only by beings with tabernacles of flesh and bone, this leaves just one individual in the entire patriarchal line who could have given Abraham his patriarchal ordination, the only worthy patriarchal for the father still alive, he who had never died, but had been translated, Enoch. That Enoch came to confer with Abraham was in fact the opinion of the Flemish author cited in the early 1700s by the learned French abbey, Dom Augustin Calmet. Enoch's initiating Abraham into the ordinances and giving him the priesthood may well have been the occasion alluded to by Clement of Alexandria when he wrote that the region of God is hard to attain, but was seen by Abraham afar off, who was forthwith initiated by the angel." jewish kabbalistic tradition directly attests that abraham's rabbi or teacher was none other than the angel enoch enoch's extending the right hand to abraham in the ordinances would further fit the context of the rainbow-like arc through which the right hand is being extended to abraham on this occasion as depicted in the early christian illustration of the event for as we shall see in the later appearance of enoch to abraham surrounding the person of enoch was a rainbow That Enoch would be sent to restore authority on the occasion of the Lord's appearing to Abraham seems very much like what happened in the Kirtland Temple in 1836, when angels restored lost authority, and the Lord also personally appeared to talk about the blessings that would flow to tens of thousands because of the authority bestowed that day. Once again, Abraham's life foreshadowed that of Joseph Smith. If Enoch was indeed one of the one who ordained Abraham to the patriarchal priesthood and gave him the ordinances of the baptism of life in the right hand, then the word of the Lord, spoken years earlier to Abraham on the altar by the angel of the presence, Enoch, takes on an added meaning. I will lead thee by my hand, and I will take thee to put upon thee my name, even the priesthood of thy father. It seems that it was Enoch himself who now literally extended his hand to Abraham in the ordinances and to confer the patriarchal priesthood authority. Zion above had descended to pass on its authority so that Zion might again be established below. In fact, this event may well have been a key part of the Lord's purpose in translating Enoch, so that he could return on this very occasion and transfer the long-lost authority and ordinances to Abraham for the re-establishment of Zion on earth. The souls we had won. Abraham lost no time in seeking to reestablish Zion, for by the time he left Haran, he did so, as he comments in the book of Abraham, with the souls that we had won in Haran. How had they been won? Abraham had lived in Haran for a number of years, and from the moment he arrived there, says Jewish tradition, he attracted attention by his exemplary and magnanimous manner of life. The people of the land of Haran saw that Abraham was good and and upright with God and man and that the lord his god was with him similarly in the quran abraham is repeatedly referred to as the upright and is called a man of truth or very truthful indeed in islamic tradition one of the most prominent and distinctive qualities was that he was truthful par excellence he was also a missionary par excellence freely imparting both spiritual and physical sustenance with which in both regards he was blessed abundantly in the book of Abraham, he specifically speaks of the many flocks in Haran, and upon finally leaving the place, mentions all of our substance that we had gathered. The hand of the Lord prospered him in his temporal affairs, which included raising livestock. He probably engaged in mercantile activity with merchants and caravaneers with whom he would have come in nearly constant contact, since his own journeys and residences seem to have been along the important trade routes. Abraham was an immensely wealthy man who surely had business dealings of all varieties, providing him with as much opportunity as the next man for sharp dealing, even dishonesty. But he never drove a hard bargain, and he took no advantage of others' weaknesses, for all men received their due at his hand. Even though many with whom he dealt were scoundrels, mean, and inhospitable, their one guiding principle being the maximizing of profits, his life was in stark contrast, his example such that many wanted to learn more of his principles in religion. Word of his teaching traveled beyond the borders of the city, and spiritual pilgrims from elsewhere in Mesopotamia had no trouble finding Abraham if they wished to go sit with him and learn. For Abraham, the temporal blessings God placed in his hands were opportunities to extend blessings to others. He was the father of guests, reported Al-Tathlabi. He would not eat... The morning meal or evening meal without a guest. The Midrash says that Abraham, our father, used to bring them into his house and give them food and drink and be friendly to them and to convert them. In a joint effort with Sarah, Abraham used to convert the men and Sarai the women. Hence, Abraham writes about the souls we had won. Sarah was an equal partner with her husband in this endeavor, and though she was biologically barren, her success in winning souls to God's kingdom was already making her the mother of many. The people of Haran readily yielded to the influence of Abraham's humane spirit and his piety. Many of them obeyed his precepts, and he taught them the instruction of the Lord and his ways, in this large-scale missionary effort. His teaching was as eloquent as his example, for the Lord had blessed him with the gift of mighty teaching, says the Qur'an. The Lord made Abraham the prophet, and bestowed upon him gifts of grace, and granted him a lofty power to convey the truth unto others. He was an eloquent speaker, says Islamic tradition, and according to Jewish tradition, called out in a mighty voice to all the world. He led them to righteousness by speaking persuasively, even the guilty he led to righteousness. As their hearts were changed, and they felt to declare that the Lord, he is God, in the heavens above and the earth below, and you are Abraham, his prophet. Thus was Abraham's fulfilling his baptismal covenant to stand as a witness of God at all times and in all things and in all places, doing what his latter-day descendants would likewise be commanded to do open their mouths and declare my gospel with a sound of rejoicing as with a voice of a trump abraham's voice was mighty because of the almighty who by whose inspiration abraham spoke philo of alexandria reported that the spirit came upon abraham making him persuasive in his speech and granting understanding to his hearers reminding us of nephi's words that when a man speaketh by the power of the Holy Ghost, and the power of the Holy Ghost carrieth it unto the hearts of the children of men, Abraham is the great example of the Lord's mandate to the Latter-day Saints to teach by the Spirit, as exemplified also by the, latter, by the first Latter-day Saint, the Prophet Joseph Smith, who was supernally blessed to teach, to speak, and to counsel with convincing power. The converts that Abraham made in Haran, as Jewish tradition reports, remained with him in his house, and they adhered to him, and became God-fearing and good, being called the people of the god of abraham altogether they constituted a great crowd the book of jasher puts the number at seventy-two men most of whom presumably would be heads of families if so the total number would have been at least several hundred the number would continue to grow with abraham's travels and missionary labors no less an authority than maimonides says that abraham's converts came to be numbered into the thousands and tens of thousands if this seems exaggerated one need only remember the remarkably rapid growth of the church restored by joseph smith who like his forefather abraham was also a missionary par excellence and as joseph smith organized the church and delegated authority in the work of building zion so did abraham The situation would have been similar also to that of Alma, who, having authority from God, established the church of God, or the church of Christ, and ordained priests to teach the church members concerning the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, commanding them that there should be no contention one with another, but that they should look forward with one eye, having one faith and one baptism, having their hearts knit together in unity and love one towards another. According to Hugh Nibley, abraham founded his zion and those who wished to follow became the followers of abraham by special rites and ordinances they were adopted into the family so he founded the church with the ordinances of the temple even though there were yet higher ordinances he would still seek not unlike latter-day saints doing temple work in kirtland even though there were no additional ordinances yet to be revealed such were the fervent efforts to build the kingdom of god by the man who as he himself said having left earth seeking peace, happiness, and rest, not by looking forward to retirement or by building his dream house away from humanity, but by living among them and serving them tirelessly. The rest that Abraham sought was not a life of affluent ease. He was striving to enter into the rest of the Lord, obtainable only by serving him with all of one's heart, might, mind, and strength. Call and Covenant so it was that abraham qualified for the momentous call that now came from god himself who personally appeared to abraham and declared arise for i have purpose to take thee out of haran and to make thee a minister to bear my name in a strange land which i will give unto thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession for fourteen years says the book of jubilees had abraham resided in haran having obediently left behind his native ur and extended family Now, after that long time of building life and relationships anew, of establishing himself and his family in this goodly location, he was asked to uproot everything yet again and to take the road toward a strange land. The challenge now thrust on him was to journey to a distant land in a very different place, among a different people, speaking a different language and practicing a different religion. It was a daunting task at best, but the divine reassurance of him who was sending him seemed more than adequate as the creator identified himself, speaking of his creation's i am the lord thy god i dwell in heaven the earth is my footstool i stretch my hand over the sea and it obeys my voice and i cause the wind and the fire to be my chariot i say to the mountains depart hence and behold they are taken away by a whirlwind in an instant suddenly my name is jehovah and i know the end from the beginning abraham 2 7 through 8 Early in life, Abraham had sought God as the creator, and God now identified himself to Abraham using what appears to be an allusion to the creation, when the Lord had stretched his hand over the turbulent primeval waters to bring them under his dominion. The same imagery may also look ahead to the time when the Lord would, through Moses, stretch forth his hand over the sea for the salvation of Abraham's chosen seed as they fled the Egyptian chariots. In addition, Abraham had probably read in the patriarchal writings how Christ had foretold that in his mortal ministry, he would walk on the waves of the sea and would motion to the waves and they would stand still. Abraham may well have recognized the imagery, a reference to when, as we can read in the Gospels, during the storm on the sea, the Savior rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. As the wind ceased and there was a great calm, <clears throat> early Christians also associated the chariot with that event and used both the chariot and the sea as an important symbols associated with Christ in the ordinance of baptism cyril of jerusalem for example spoke of christ walking on the water as a charioteer of the sea and as the charioteer and creator of the waters other writers apparently compare the waters of baptism to the chariot or the throne of god while gregory of nyssa observed that by receiving the holy spirit after baptism our mind is taken up to the chariot of fire and carried through the air to the glories of heaven in light of such symbolism it seems more than coincidental that it was just after abraham's baptism and receipt of the holy spirit that he heard the lord speak of his chariot and of the sea early christians further spoke of elijah's fiery chariot in which he like enoch was taken to heaven as a type of baptism and a type of Christ's ascent to heaven after his resurrection an event of which abraham also had also read in patriarchal records Indeed, Moses reportedly referred to God as the Rider of the Heavens, in a passage alluded to by an ancient Kabbalistic book attributed to none other than Abraham. After identifying himself to Abraham, the Lord proceeded to pronounce promise after promise of blessings and glory, all centered in his family and future posterity. My hand shall be over thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee above measure. And make thy name great among all nations and thou shalt be a blessing unto thy seed after thee that in their hands they shall bear this ministry and priesthood unto all nations and i will bless them through thy name for as many as receive the gospel shall be called after thy name and shall be accounted thy seed and shall rise up and bless thee as their father and i will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee and in thee that is in thy priesthood and in thy seed that is thy priesthood for i will give unto thee a promise that this right shall continue in thee, and in thy seed after thee, that is to say, the literal seed, or the seed of thy body, shall all families of the earth be blessed, even with the blessings of the gospel, which are the blessings of salvation, even unto life eternal. Only a brief summary of these remar- of these breathtaking promises have survived in our traditional Genesis text, which mentions nothing about the gospel or priesthood that Abraham had just received, and which he and his posterity would offer to the nations as a blessing. But the Apostle Paul seems to have understood the larger picture as portrayed in the book of Abraham, for he wrote, as summarized by one scholar, that God spoke his words of blessing to all nations through Abraham, but Abraham could only be that channel of blessing by hearing, believing, and obeying, and in turn the nations could only appropriate that blessing by imitating his faith but even the terse genesis account of god's call and blessing of abraham emphasizes the contrast between him and the rebellious generation in which he lived as well as his pivotal role in god's plan for the human race and the rest of human history the covenant granted to abraham makes him in the words of one scholar the most pivotal and strategic man in the course of the world history or as expressed by the rabbis through the abrahamic covenant the order of the world was established Indeed, to try to compress the scope and significance of what God promised to Abraham into a single word, covenant, is illusory. For as one scholar emphasizes, there is simply no English word that adequately covers the concept of the covenant in Judaism. As Abraham had heard, this covenant would be a defining factor throughout the rest of human history, but already its effects were in process. For as Abraham had just been told, all those accepting the gospel would henceforth be accounted his seed, a process that Joseph Smith described as including literal physiological changes. Childless though Abraham remained, yet the converts he had already made were accounted his seed. To this day, converts in Judaism are considered to be born anew, children of Abraham and Sarah, and are even given new names, men the name of Abraham and women the name of Sarah. Indeed, Judaism expressly teaches that Sarah was an equal and indispensable partner of Abraham in the covenant and in the propagation of the faith and that there can be no covenant without Sarah. Already at Haran, what we see, to use the words of a modern writer, is this one man, Abraham, in the process of becoming a people, and we see also the promise that must have brought untold joy to the heart of both Abraham and Sarah, still childless, the promise of literal posterity, the promise that will run as a, a leitmotif through the, story of, through the Abraham story. It must have seemed a rain after a long drought, The divine word that both abraham and sarah would surely have interpreted as assurance that their long trial of infertility was about to end that they were about to be blessed with the great desire of their hearts abraham's blessing and glory centered in family and posterity he was to become the new father of the human race possessing as he himself mentions the right of the firstborn even adam and being promised that his posterity would do as adam once did rise up and bless him as their father Why was this covenant, with its lavish blessings, given to Abraham? He himself tells that he had sought the Lord through righteousness, part of the concept of chesed. Another part is Jehovah's loyalty and love in accepting Abraham and his descendants into the covenant. And fulfilling the conditions thereof, this dual dimension of chesed is captured perfectly by what Nephi said of Abraham, The Lord leadeth away the righteous into precious lands, and those and loveth those who will have him to be their God. Behold, he loved our fathers, and he covenanted with them, yea, even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he remembered the covenants which he had made. Judaism further recognizes that the spread of love and mercy, or chesed, is the very purpose of the covenant of Abraham. In fact, the Talmud speaks of bestowers of loving kindness, sons of bestowers of loving kindness, who hold fast to the covenant of Abraham, our father. And why, the rabbis asked, did God's pronouncement of blessings include the promise to curse those that cursed Abraham? Because when Abraham had been reviled and cursed for teaching righteousness, he had not responded in kind, but had kept silent. Therefore, God would step in and curse those who cursed him. This principle would be expressed by Moroni. Judgment is mine, saith the Lord, and vengeance is mine also. Seeking Enoch's Zion. Abraham tells that at the close of God's conversation dealing with Delivering the covenant in Haran, after the Lord hath withdrawn from speaking to me, and withdrawn his face from me, I said in my heart, Thy servant has sought thee earnestly, now I have found thee. Thou didst send thine angel to deliver me from the gods of Elkanah, and I will do well to hearken unto thy voice. Therefore let thy servant rise up and depart in peace. Great were the blessings that Abraham had sought and found, but his seeking was not over. According to the New Testament letter to the Hebrews... By faith Abraham, when he was called to go into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and went out, And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country dwelling in tabernacles or tents. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God." Bible scholars have pointed out the similarity in description between this city and the one mentioned in certain Jewish and Christian apocryphal texts. In the book of Revelation, when the apostle John sees the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, he sees that it has twelve foundations adorned with precious stones. It is the same city mentioned in 4 Ezra when the prophet Ezra sees vision an established city and a place of huge foundations. And here's the Lord explained that in the last days, Zion will come and be made manifest to everybody prepared and built. According to a popular view, this city was attainable by Abraham only after death, for entrance into the heavenly city is not experienced on this side of the grave. In this view, Abraham did not focus his faith on the present and the earthly, but on the future and the heavenly. Not so say the Joseph Smith sources, which to close, disclose that the heavenly city Abraham had in mind had once been an actual earthly city that had been translated, even as Abraham had discovered in the patriarchal records. And it was not just the people that were taken, said Joseph Smith, but also the very city which they occupied, and the foundations on which it stood, with a large piece of earth immediately connected with its foundations and the city. Hence, according to Bruce R. McConkie, in looking for the city which hath foundations, Abraham sought for the city of Enoch, which God had before taken. But how could he seek for it if it was gone from the earth? Latter-day scripture also describes an order of the priesthood available in Abraham's day that could actually give mortals access to that translated city, different than the patriarchal order of God and later the Melchizedek priesthood, and was generally available to all who believed in God. The JST Genesis 14.29 says, "...unto as many as believed on his name, and worked righteousness." And according to the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis, that same order of priesthood gave men power by faith to perform mighty miracles and was described as the order of the covenant which God made with Enoch. For men having this faith coming up unto this order of God were translated and taken up into heaven. It was this order of priesthood that Abraham was seeking when he left Haran. He was seeking, in other words, to be translated to the city of Enoch. Abraham's quest for the city of Zion may well be alluded to to in ancient sources the quran records this prayer of abraham "O lord join me in the righteous include me with the heirs of the paradise of bliss rabbinic tradition reports that the suggestive statement that abraham longed to have wings like a dove that he might fly away and be at rest and an early christian illustration of god commanding abraham to leave haran shows the right hand be extended to abraham through a multicolored rainbow like ark an event echoing God's putting forth his right hand to Noah when the rainbow was given as a sign of the covenant. What covenant? Not only the promise not to flood the earth, but also disclosed in the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis, the promise to eventually bring Enoch's Zion back to earth. What makes this scene with Abraham particularly poignant is the fact that as we have seen, the right hand that was extended to him at Haran was most likely that of Enoch himself, Acting as a messenger of the Almighty, the illustration of Enoch's right hand being extended to Abraham may well be symbolic of Abraham seeking Enoch's Zion. But if Abraham were to achieve his quest of being translated, how could his posterity bless all the nations of the earth? In the same way as happened with Enoch, whose son, as Abraham had read, was not taken, that the covenants of the Lord might be fulfilled, which he made to Enoch. And if Abraham was seeking the order of the priesthood that gave access to the city of Enoch... Why hadn't Enoch himself simply ordained Abraham to this order at the same time Enoch ordained him to the patriarchal order? Apparently for the same reason that the Lord appeared in the Kirtland temple and then sent other messengers. Once he delegates authority, such authority is to be obtained only from those to whom it has been delegated. Hence Enoch, the only living patriarch with the patriarchal priesthood, had been sent to ordain Abraham to that priesthood. But since the Melchizedek priesthood was available through a mortal whom Abraham would later meet, the man Melchizedek, Abraham must be patient and continue to seek it, and thereby obtain Enoch's translated city of Zion. Thus Abram, whose very name can mean the father is high, or the father lifts himself on high, left Haran to seek residence with his forefather Enoch, who was already high, and lifted up. Might Abraham himself possibly have thought that his own name prophetically pretended his own destiny, that he was to join his forefather Enoch in that beautiful terrestrial world that was high and lifted up? And if Abraham had read his ancestor's prophecy about the descendant who would set his dwelling on high, did he possibly interpret this to mean that he would be translated to the city of Enoch? Devout prayer and divine protection on the journey into Canaan as we have seen, it was Abraham's fate to live in the age of great sacral kingships that claimed not only to rule by divine right but also global dominion. Abraham's own writings hold the key to understand those audacious claims as an imitation of Adam's patriarchal priesthood authority, to which Abraham himself was the rightful heir. What most occupied these, those ancient pretenders can be seen to this day in the various inscriptions scattered throughout the world's great museums, Written in first person, they declare in lofty words the daring military conquests and ostentatious building projects of those mighty monarchs. In sharp contrast, the restored writings of the true holder of that royal patriarchal authority attest to an entirely different agenda. Also written in first person, Abraham's record declares that with that authority he sought neither to conquer nor to build monuments, but to obediently travel forth to build the kingdom of God. Thus, with the patriarchal authority received from Enoch, Abraham obeyed the divine command to leave the goodly land of Haran for a strange land, a destination he had never seen. Commenting on Abraham's situation, Joseph Smith stated that the word spoken to Noah was not sufficient for Abraham, and it was not required of Abraham to seek an inheritance in a strange country upon the word spoken to Noah. But for himself, Abraham obtained the promises at the hand of the Lord. Orson Hyde similarly observed that Abraham might have searched all former records and revelations, but here was a a duty he never could have learned therefrom, depart. Hence, the circumstances required new revelation, and God gave it by commanding this great man to go forth into a country where he had never had been. In Abraham's words in the book of Abraham, I, Abraham, departed as the Lord had said unto me, and I, Abraham, was sixty and two years old when i departed out of haran this number contradicts the number in genesis but happens to correspond precisely with abraham's age as given in the chrono- in the chronicle of george sensilius the ardent chronographer from byzantium abraham's parents did not go his mother having died in haran and his father having returned to his idolatry and choosing to remain behind Abraham took his wife and his nephew Lot in the large community of saints, numbering at least into the hundreds that had joined him. He led by inspiration. Abraham was guided in all his family affairs by the Lord, said Joseph Smith, and were, was told where to go and when to stop. President Spencer W. Kimball added that it was Abraham's faithfulness in all things that qualified him to receive revelation for his family. And having received that revelation, Abraham led his family and his people by love beginning with abraham's love for the author of the commandment he was now following not only did abraham listen to god's command says a rabbinic text about abraham's leaving Haran, though it entailed hardship and inconvenience but he did so joyfully not grudgingly abraham's love encompassed also those whom he led bringing most ardently beginning most ardently with his own wife Speaking of Abraham taking Sarah out of Haran, the Zohar comments that it was by persuasion and not by compulsion that he introduced Sarah to go with him. Induced Sarah to go with him. Abraham's priesthood leadership was the model of what the Lord commands concerning Latter day Priesthood leadership never by compulsion, but only by persuasion, and the similar attributes of gentleness, meekness, kindness, and love unfeigned qualifications for the constant companionship with the Holy Ghost in the presence of God. And if Abraham so qualified, so did his beloved Sarah, whose faith at least matched that of Abraham. He had heard the command to leave directly from God, she only from Abraham. Yet she went without argument and with full purpose of heart, qualifying for the continuous presence and protection of the Almighty. And what of the multitude of his converts following him on this journey? One writer supposes that they must have been an apprehensive have been apprehensive inasmuch as their leader could not tell them exactly where they were headed. In reality, they had faith in their prophet and leader who was leading by the Spirit. In the words of WFP Noble, following the leadings of divine providence, with the one supreme motive to honor and obey God, he carried with him the presence of the Lord, as did Sarah. Jewish tradition tells of a visible cloud of holiness that hovered over her tent as God's testimony to what went on within Sarah constantly brought holiness into her home, which was imbued with the divine presence, a light that spread over the rest of the camp as well. The Jewish sage, Nachmanides, held that the divine presence rested upon their tents. It was perhaps this visible divine protection to which Abraham alluded when he wrote, as recorded in the book of Abraham. We came forth in the way of the land of Canaan and dwelt in tents, and we came on our way, therefore, eternity was our covering, and our rock, and our salvation. For Abraham and Sarah, this was a journey that transformed them both. The glory hovering over Abraham's caravan was an indisputable manifestation that Zion was again upon the earth, even as divine glory had once visibly rested upon Enoch's city of Zion. But if the phenomenon reflected the past, it also foreshadowed the future. For according to Exodus, the Israelites under Moses were accompanied by a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night as they were led by the Lord's angel on whom he had placed his name, namely Enoch, raising the possibility that Enoch was also leading Abraham and his followers in their journey. As remembered in rabbinic tradition, the Israelites were surrounded with clouds of glory which protected them, covering them like a canopy or a pavilion. Thus the children of the patriarchs, in the words of Nachmanides, returned to the eminence of their forefathers who had God's mystery upon their tents and who were they who were themselves the bearers of his Shekinah, divine presence. All of this seems to be echoed in the Jewish festival Sukkot, or Festival of Tabernacles, which, according to tradition, is intended to symbolize the protective clouds of glory that covered the Israelites in their march. On the first day of Sukkot, the invited heavenly guest is none other than the patriarch Abraham. For Latter-day Saints, however, the most important foreshadowings of Abraham's experience have yet to be fulfilled similar glory will rest upon abraham's latter-day seed isaiah prophesied of the time when the lord would create upon every dwelling place of mount zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night which sounds like the lord's invitation to latter-day zion to arise and shine forth that they may be a standard for the nations it is yet another example of the events of the latter-day zion being foreshadowed by abraham who is one of the key figures says he in whom all of the events of the past are brought into focus as by a burning glass, and whose actions are in turn projected into the future as an ever-expanding image. Abraham's fateful journey from Haran southward left an indelible imprint still visible in the Middle East, for virtually every country through which Abraham passed and wrote to Canaan has its own holy site and legend associated with him. Various routes for his travels have been suggested, but it appears likely he passed through the city of Aleppo, which contains the Mosque of Abraham, and since ancient times has claimed the honor of being on Abraham's route. Continuing south, the journey would have taken him through the Syrian desert, undoubtedly into Damascus. At least two ancient historians reported that Abraham had reigned there as king, while Josephus added that the name of Abraham is still, even now, famous in Damascus, near to which was a village called Abraham's Abode. It may be the same village that still claims still today claims to have been the home to abraham located near damascus in a secluded hilly area considered one of the middle east's most remarkable survivals being the only place where ancient aramaic has survived as a living language but the very terseness of abraham's own description of their route to canaan seems to leave open the possibility of other settlements visited but not mentioned Maimonides' description of the journey seems to suggest a course that, not unlike the missionary journeys of Abraham's descendant, the Apostle Paul, may have meandered as they were led by the Spirit to perform their missionary labors. As Abraham and his company traveled, according to Maimonides, they preached to everyone they met, inviting them and gathering all who would listen. As the Lord would later lead Abraham's descendant, Lehi, into the more fertile parts of the wilderness, so it seems that the Lord led Abraham to the most... Fertile fields of souls ready to harvest. The book of Abraham adds a stop to the itinerary southward, not mentioned by Genesis, the land of Jershon, which some have identified as the ancient city known to us as Jerash, located in present-day Jordan. In Jershon, Abraham built an altar and made an offering unto the Lord and prayed. That prayer and the accompanying sacrifice must have been offered as he learned to do from the patriarchal records. In the name of Jesus Christ... And this particular prayer included a petition for mercy on behalf of his father, who had nearly succeeded in having Abraham killed, and who, after repenting and following Abraham to Haran, had turned again unto his idolatry, and had chosen not to continue the journey with Abraham. It could have been cause for Abraham to reject and forget his father, but Abraham was a man of mercy and forgiveness. I, Abraham, prayed that the famine might be turned away from my father's house, that they might not perish nor did abraham wish his father to perish spiritually the quran reports that abraham implored the lord to forgive my father for verily he is among those who have gone astray from jershon abraham would probably have headed west and crossed the jordan river to arrive at shechem in the land of canaan it was a delightful land described by a nearly contemporaneous account thus figs were in it and grapes it had more wine than water plentiful was its honey and abundant its olives every kind of fruit was on its trees barley was there and emer there was no limit to any kind of cattle but there was also danger in this lush land here he built another altar and prayed and reported by an armenian apocryphal source holding his hands on high in abraham's own words i offered sacrifice and called on the lord devoutly because we had already come into the land of an idolatrous nation The idolatry was as rank as that which he opposed in Ur, and included human sacrifice and ritual prostitution. It was to the heart of such spiritual darkness that God sent his messenger of light. For as a modern Jewish writer relates, as God directed Abraham's steps steadily to the south, far from keeping him away from the centers of Canaanite deviancy, their temples and high places, he guided him straight for strategically located cultic sites. Shechem was, in fact, located at the crossroads of two intersecting trade routes, making it well-suited to maximize the potential number of spiritually starved Canaanites Abraham might teach. But not without some peril. A passage from the Testament of Levi discloses that travelers through Shechem were often murdered and their wives ravished, and though, in fact, Abraham and Sarah had, just, had been in just such danger from the residents, but the Lord prevented them, even though they grossly mistreated one of Abraham's group. Abraham did not respond in kind. Profound prayer brought profound revelation, as told in Genesis and in first person in the book of Abraham. And the Lord appeared unto me in answer to my prayers and said unto me, Unto thy seed will I give this land. The momentous event is still commemorated at the site revered by Druze Arabs as the place where God covenanted with Abraham. Here barren women of all religions make pilgrimages praying for a child. Commenting on Abraham's experience, 19th century clergyman Christopher Wordsworth, nephew of the famous poet, observed that it was at Shechem, the center of Canaan, it was a beautiful valley between Mount Ebal on the north and Mount Gerizim on the south, where the Lord appeared unto Abraham for the first time in Canaan, and afterwards to Shechem, Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of God, the Lord Jehovah, in the flesh, the true seed of Abraham, came and sat at the well. In the weariness and weakness of humanity, the first revealed himself as the messiah and declared that he would give to all living water of the holy spirit thus christ at shechem explained and fulfilled the promise given to abraham there god's promise of posterity to abraham would have given hope also to sarah who like her drew's descendants would who would pray for posterity at shechem prayed there herself with a faith forever vibrant and sustaining looking forward with an eye of faith As recounted by a modern Jewish mother, Sarah left home, just as Abraham did, with the expectation that if they had the courage to follow God's way, and if they kept their pact, staying in an obedient, loving relationship, they would be showered with blessings. Knowing that she would have a child to love and fill with a dramatically new vision gave her identity, meaning, and focus. It kept her going during the long years and even decades when, despite her faith and obedience, somehow she did not get pregnant. She never cut off her conversations with God. She prayed continually for a child of her own, and God took pleasure in hearing her voice, as did a host of people in need of spiritual and temporal sustenance. She became a teacher and spiritual guide, teaching women about God and God's covenant. She was a hostess extraordinaire, whose capacious tent was a place where travelers on their own journeys could feel temporarily at home and could become refreshed. And she was graced with an abundant spiritual presence, a visible sign of God's approval of her life and mission. Each new renewal of God's promise must have brought renewed hope and joy to both Abraham and Sarah. It was the word of the Lord Abraham would be blessed with posterity. What else could this mean but that Sarah would have a child? The question and its answer were simply taken for granted as they both, with childlike faith, continued to look forward to the event that would change their lives and fulfill the great promises. The verse in the book of Abraham relating God's appearance in the land of the Canaanites is one but four short verses chronicling Abraham's journey to and through the land of promise, and all four verses mention prayer. Abraham personifies the oft-repeated latter-day commandment to pray always. In fact, according to Maimonides, no matter what Abraham was doing, his heart and mind were always with God. A striking example of his descendant Amulek, exhortation, that when you do not cry unto the Lord, let your hearts be full, drawn out in prayer unto him continually. Well did a 19th century cleric observe that Abraham was a man of prayer, and therefore he was a man of power. President Spencer W. Kimball counseled that, like Abraham, we must seek to qualify for such revelation by setting our lives in order, and by becoming acquainted with the Lord through frequent and regular conversations with him. But Abraham's alder in Canaan served a larger purpose than prayer, He built it, insisted 19th century clergyman David Breed, to openly acknowledge his God before all men. Such was the character of his religion wherever he dwelt, and to the end of his days. His principles were manifest to prince and to people. Of God, Abraham was not ashamed. He lived his religion openly. So likewise, counseled Breed, let it be manifest that you are the friend of God and the follower of Jesus. But Abraham's er, purpose was larger still, according to Ephraim the Syrian who maintained that Abraham built the altar in the land of the Canaanites so that he might teach the worship of holiness in their land. What worship? The same performed by Adam, Noah, Enoch, and all the saints since the beginning, the worship of the Father in the name of his only begotten Son, he whose blood would be shed even as a sacrificial animal upon the altar. Abraham preached Christ and him crucified and offered the ordinances Adam himself had followed, beginning with baptism in water for the remission of sins. Commenting on the Lord's promise to Abraham in Haran, that thou shalt be a blessing, the Genesis Rabbah explains that the Hebrew word for blessing, baraka, is associated with the Hebrew word for pool of water, barayakah. And just as a pool of water purifies those who are impure, or according to another translation, um, just as the pool of water removes the cultic uncleanness of an unclean person, So you, Abraham, shall bring near to God those who are afar, and shall purify them to their Father in heaven. If we had the full record, we would read of Abraham testifying of the Son of God, and leading his converts into the waters of baptism. And, says a Midrash, how great is his reward, who leads his fellow men back in penitence to the Almighty. The Power and the Pure Love of Christ journeying still southward abraham came to a mountain between bethel and ai where as genesis records he pitched his tent jewish tradition remembers that he actually first pitched sarah's tent and then his own a reflection of his constant consideration for his wife throughout his life says midrash Rabbah, abraham acted lovingly towards sarah for which god blessed abraham in all things it is an example of the lord's commandment to abraham's latter-day posterity that each husband shall love thy wife with all thy heart having set up camp abraham lost no time in building yet another altar at which he prayed his prayer is mentioned also in the ancient book of jubilees which describes the beauty and bounty of the place abraham saw that the land was spacious and most excellent and that everything was growing on it vines fig trees pomegranates oak trees holm trees tenebris olive trees cedars cypresses incense trees and all kinds of wild trees and there was water on the mountains then he blessed the lord whom had led him from ur of the chaldeans and brought him to this mountain but if the inhabitants of the bounties of the earth it was abraham who had the bread of life which he offered freely each altar that abraham built as he went also along also served according to jewish tradition as a center for his activities as a missionary in which he was assisted by Sarah. She taught the women while Abraham taught the men. It was a perfect place to do so, for Bethel, like many of the other locations Abraham stopped at, was located at a major crossroads, offering expanded opportunities to preach the gospel. And as before, Abraham's altar provided an effective opportunity to preach the the Savior's mission and atonement so poignantly foreshadowed by animal sacrifice. The Book of Mormon specifically affirms that Abraham, like all other prophets, testified of Christ, It was the same gospel that Noah had taught following the pattern of his forefathers. Believe and repent of your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, even as our fathers, and ye shall receive the Holy Ghost that ye may have all things made manifest. Abraham was living the law of the gospel and inviting others to do so. His observance of God's laws, even including keeping the Sabbath day, says Jewish tradition. He also taught the plan of salvation to a world that had long since lost the knowledge of it. Ancient sources tell that no... One among them believed in the last days and the resurrection, for the whole world believed that the souls of men were perishable. But Abraham came and preached the doctrine of immortality and transmigration. He taught, in other words, the unchanging truths of God's majestic plan of happiness for his spirit children, who are afforded the opportunity to come to earth and take bodies of flesh and blood in order to qualify through obedience for glory later in the resurrection. In all this, Abraham was building Zion as it had once been built by Enoch, who had gone forth in the land among the people testifying. So it was with Abraham who, as reported by Maimonides, went forth walking and calling and gathering the people from town to town and from country to country. According to John Taylor, Abraham was raised up as a special agent in the hand of the Almighty to disseminate correct principles among the people, and as a medium through which God would communicate intelligence and blessings to the human family. Abraham not only preached to his fellow men, but also ministered unto them. Wherefore, he, Wherever he traveled, the legend tells, people would come and ask him to pray for them, and his prayers on their behalf were answered. He always exercised his priesthood power to heal and bless others. Latter-day Revelation even provides the name of one such beneficiary, a man named Esaias, who lived in the days of Abraham and who was blessed by him. And as no one can assist in this work except he shall be humble and full of love, no one was more qualified than Abraham to invite souls to Christ. Jewish tradition insists that Abraham was the epitome of the love of God and that Abraham summoned mankind to believe in God out of his own great love for him and served him out of love by showing loving kindness, chesed, to mankind and thus doing the same work of God, a pattern that would be followed by Joseph Smith who, because of his love for his fellow men, never missed an opportunity to preach the gospel. The rabbis compared Abraham to a vial of fragrant myrrh, closed with a tidy-fitting lid and lying in a corner, so that its fragrance was not disseminated. Hence God commanded Abraham to travel and spread the sweet odor. The metaphor could not be more apt, for if Nimrod had compelled worship, Abraham's approach was precisely the opposite, not by control or compulsion would abraham change the world or win the hearts of mankind but rather by the principles of righteousness and love upon which the rights of the priesthood are always based the mighty power of love that drew mankind to abraham would be manifest in the life of Joseph smith who said of himself sectarian priests crying out concerning me and ask why is it that this babbler gains so many followers and retains them i answer it is because i possess the principle of love all i can offer the world is a good heart and a good hand Abraham also was charitable with all his heart and soul, and it is even said that the divine attribute of love was incarnate in Abraham. When we see such fruit, we know the tree, for as Mormon would explain, pure love results from a process available to all, faith, repentance, baptism, followed by the visitation of the Holy Ghost and Comforter, which Comforter filleth with hope and perfect love. This love is charity, or the pure love of Christ, and it remains and grows by praying unto the Father with all energy of heart and proving oneself a true follower of christ abraham's possession of this pure and perfect love bespeaks his own obedience to the ordinances his own fervent prayers unto the father in the name of christ and his own course in proving himself a true follower of jesus christ in abraham's case being a true follower of christ meant also foreshadowing him For, as with the Savior, Abraham's loving service was rendered by one with supreme authority. In Abraham's ordination to the patriarchal authority, he had succeeded Adam and Noah in his own patriarchal, royal patriarchal reign. Heir to the right, the kings, like Pharaoh, falsely claimed, and earnestly sought to imitate as they amassed their wealth and built their kingdoms of glory. In contrast, Abraham occupied himself in selfless service by building not his own kingdom, but the kingdom of God with an eye single to the glory of God. Only in the life of the Son of God would there be such a paradox, when he, as the heavenly king, would descend from his throne on high to serve and suffer because of his profound love for his fellow beings. It was that pure love of Christ that Abraham offered to the world of his day to heal hearts and unite the human family. It is Abraham the missionary, says Nibley, who makes brothers of all the world, who abolishes the differences between the nations and the races. As expressed by the rabbis, Abraham won people over by his love and teachings charity slept and abraham woke it up also the nations of the world slept and did not come under the wings of the shekinah who woke them up so that they might come abraham as he began to make proselytes and bring them unto bring them under the wings of the shekinah for he carried with him the presence of the lord in judaism and ancient israel the shekinah was the majestic presence or manifestation of god which has descended to dwell among men more importantly and conspicuously on Mount Zion and in the temple, for it is upon the cherubim and upon the Ark of the Covenant that the Shekinah rests. The one day a year when it was symbolically visible to man was on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest on behalf of all of Israel would enter into the Holy of Holies and create a cloud of incense symbolizing the Shekinah, and then sprinkle sacrificial blood on top of the Ark, the very throne of the Lord. Only then could Israel, if they had repented, be forgiven. In calling all to the shekinah abraham was inviting all to come unto christ to his gospel to his atonement his throne and his temple all the loving arms of zion what all this seems to suggest is that abraham was traveling with a portable temple like the later tabernacle carried by the israelites in their sojourn through the wilderness we have already seen that divine glory rested upon abraham's camp even as such glory would rest upon israelite tabernacle And as that tabernacle would house the ark, the sacred wood chest containing the tablets written by the finger of God, so did Abraham possess, as we have seen, the wooden chest of Adam, that likewise contained ancient patriarchal records written by the finger of God. Jewish tradition insists that Abraham observed all the temple ordinances, including the all-important temple ritual of the Day of Atonement, and ancient sources emphasize Abraham's careful and exacting obedience in performing such ordinances. Abraham's mission of inviting all to Christ was to last a lifetime and beyond. For the great blessing to abraham's posterity as pronounced at haran was that they were also to bless others by bearing the gospel to all nations abraham's own travels to accomplish this would be anything but easy the hardships were many and severe which he encountered according to jewish tradition but as noted by 19th century pastor samuel crothers for the sake of being instruments in the hands of god Abraham and his sons continued all their lives to labor as faithful missionaries from one kingdom to another, foregoing the comforts of a fixed and fortified habitation, cheerfully encountering that dangerous and hardships. Abraham was not only the father of the faithful, but he was the father of missionaries. Jewish sources attest, for example, the missionary activity of both Isaac and Jacob in emulation of Abraham. Abraham was not just the father of converts, but also those who would convert others, those who was who would establish zion as john taylor stated abraham's posterity were to stand as messengers of god as legates of the skies commissioned of the great jehovah to proclaim his word to fallen men and bring them to zion abraham's missionary example is especially relevant relevant for latter-day zion according to prince president spencer w kimball just as the lord called his servant abraham to serve as a missionary so he is calling the saints today Like Abraham, we must declare the gospel to the world, not stopping with a vocal declaration, but living the gospel so others can see the truth.